You're listening to audio from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where we train students to preach the word and reach the world. For more free resources like this one, visit www.swbts.edu forward slash media resources. Very much, gentlemen, for that. It's a joy to be with you today and look forward to bringing the word of the Lord to you. I want you to join me in turning to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. We're going to look at the first three verses this morning. And while you are turning to that passage of Scripture, like you, I have found it very interesting that Dr. Patterson is preaching a series of messages on the Ten Commandments. I look forward to that. I've enjoyed the first two. look forward to the remainder of the messages. I do find it uh, interesting, and you probably will as well, to know that it is points off for someone to preach on the Ten Commandments who does not obey all of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> I don't know if Dr. Patterson has recently looked at the ninth commandment, Thou shalt not bear false witness. <laughs> but for the last uh, 35 years or so of my life, he has been bearing false witness along the way about me, including last week. I think he called me, what did he call me, an ignorant hillbilly or something like that? <laughs> or an intelligent, maybe it was an intelligent hillbilly. That was it. That was what he called me. And uh, so... Anyway, he's bearing false witness against me there. Half of that is right, I guess. I have to admit, I, I am pretty much a, a hillbilly, probably true there. But uh, Dr. Patterson, I do appreciate the opportunity of preaching today uh, in chapel, and I love you so very much. Thank God for you and your influence in my life and all that you're doing for our Lord and His kingdom service. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, and having laid aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's been 15 years now on Thanksgiving Day that I competed in my last long-distance race. It was about a nine-mile race in Dallas called the Turkey Trot, held annually on Thanksgiving Day. I felt like by the time that race was over, only nine miles, but I thought I was going to die, and I swore never again would I ever endure such pain. It is apt to me that the author of Hebrews would choose the metaphor of the long-distance race to illustrate the Christian life. It is a marvelous illustration of the Christian life in so many ways because so much of what characterizes the long-distance race also characterizes living the Christian life for Jesus. For example, if you ever run in a long-distance race, you know that it is pain. From the top of your head to the sole of your feet, every nerve fiber and millibar of your being hurts. You feel like your lungs are going to burst out of your chest. Your legs feel like rubber. You feel like you are about to die. 
It's very interesting to me that the Greek word for race in your Greek New Testament there, agon, is the word where we get an English word, or an English word etymologically relates to this word, the word agony. Because anybody who's ever run long distance knows it is agony. It hurts. It's a struggle. That's what the word means, the concept of athletic struggle. And that's very apt, is it not, for the Christian life? Because we know that it is a struggle. It is not easy to live for Christ. It is not easy to be the man or the woman of God that we are required to be in Scripture. We know that Joshua didn't invade Canaan in a rocking chair. And it's not going to be easy to live the Christian life and run the ultra-marathon that God calls each of us as His children to run. It is a struggle, yes, there's pain along the way, but there's joy and victory amidst all of that. But a race is also characterized by progress. Whether it's a short-distance race, long-distance race, there's always a starting line and there's a finish line. And the runners start and they make progress toward the finish line. One of the key words that describes the Christian life is the word progress. The question this morning in your life is not the question of perfection, it is the question of progression. Are you, as a Christian, making progress spiritually? Are you further down the road spiritually today than you were last month, last year, three years ago? The issue is not perfection, none of us is perfect, but the issue is progression. We should be making progress in the Christian life. And so a race is characterized by progress, it's characterized by direction. There's a starting line, the finish line, and we all run toward the finish line. That is the goal. There is a direction involved, and we must run in the proper direction. In fact, if you don't, you can be disqualified in the race. Oh, the year was 1928 when Southern California played Georgia Tech in the Rose Bowl. An event occurred that day that made sports history. There was a fumble on the field, and a man by the name of Roy Regals picked up the ball. In the midst of the mad scramble, he began to run, eluding a tackler here, another tackler there, and he made his way down the field, running the best run of the day, an 80-yard run. But finally, Roy Regals was tackled by his own teammates just short of his own goal line because in all of the confusion of the fumble, He had run 80 yards in the wrong direction. He earned a nickname that stayed with him forever. They called him Wrong Way Regals. I wonder if God ever looks down from heaven on us, His children, and He looks over there and He says, shaking His head, there goes old Wrong Way Bill. (laughs) There's old Wrong Way Susan. Oh, my goodness, there's a wrong way, Tom. And he calls one of our names, and he says they're always running off in the wrong direction. It is important that we run in the direction of the goal of Christlikeness, the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Well, the author of Hebrews talks to us today about the race. And I want you to see some of the things that he says to us about the race. Let me point out to you that really, as you look at these three verses, there is one primary point or theme or focus or purpose in all that the author is trying to say. It is found in the one key imperatival idea that you see there in verse 1 when you read these words, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
Everything else you find in these three verses essentially modifies that main clause. For example, at the very beginning, prior to that, there are two participial clauses, and then following that, there's a third participial clause. All three modifying and giving attendant circumstances are saying, here is how you go about running the race. And so I want you to consider those with me this morning. Notice that the author begins by saying, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And notice also that word, therefore. Would you be interested to know that in the Greek New Testament, that is the single strongest conjunction that occurs in the entire Greek New Testament. It only occurs twice in the whole Greek New Testament. It occurs right here. And the author is closely combining chapter 11 with chapter 12. And he's saying, therefore, indeed, we also, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run the race with endurance. Now, the first question that arises is, well, who in the earth is that great cloud of witnesses? Who, do, who does that compose? What is the author talking about? We're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. And somebody pipes up and says, oh, I know what that is, David. Why, that's my grandmother who was a great Christian, and she's gone on to heaven now, and she's in the grandstands, and she's watching me live my Christian life. Or that's my pastor that led me to the Lord, and he's gone on to heaven now, and he's up there. He's watching me run the Christian race. Well, I can't tell you whether those who have gone to heaven know and observe what goes on down here on earth. The Bible, frankly, does not say. may be true, it may not be true. But I can tell you this. That is not what this passage means. You say, well, how do you know that, smarty pants? Well, I'll tell you how I know, because one of the key themes of Bible interpretation and then preaching is always look at the passage in context. And do you notice that we are told that this cloud is a cloud of witnesses? Notice we are surrounded by the cloud of witnesses. Well, who in the earth are they? Well, hold your place right here and just go one page back in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 11. And allow me to point out to you something you find in Hebrews 11, 2, and something again you find in Hebrews 11, 39. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 2, after that statement about faith. In verse 1 is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Look at verse 2. For by it, that is by their faith, men of old gained approval. Look at that in your Greek New Testament and it reads, men of old obtained a good testimony. Now look at verse 39. After carrying us through God's hall of faith, great men and women in chapter 11 who lived their life by faith in God. And oh, what a a listing of men and women it is. You read Abel and you read about Enoch and you read about Noah and you read about Abraham and Sarah, and you read about Moses, and a whole list all the way down, ending with Rahab, by the way. Very interesting ending with Rahab the harlot. And yet all of these great men and women were people of great faith, and they bear witness. And then we read in verse 39, look at it, all these having gained approval. There is the exact same phrase that occurs in verse 2. What The way verse chapter 11 begins is the way that it ends. All of these have obtained a good 
testimony. What is their testimony? Their testimony is they bear witness to us today that the only life and the only way to live successfully for Christ is to run the race with endurance by faith. And their life is a testimony to faith in God. And that's what he's talking about here. They are the great cloud of witnesses. Now, it is true, however, I think by analogy, it is legitimate to apply this in our lives, not only as we think about those great men and women of faith of days gone by in the Bible, but also great men and women of faith, for example, in our own family or churches, upon whose shoulders we stand today, and who by their testimony and example to us show us and spur us on as we look to them as we run the Christian's marathon. I think about Miss Bishop. Mrs. Bishop was my fourth grade Sunday school teacher. A little diminutive lady, barely five feet tall, I suppose. And one day after Sunday school class ended and we were on our way out the door to go to church, she stopped me and pulled me aside. And she said, David, she said, I believe God has a special plan for your life. And she said, I don't know what that is, but she said, I'm convinced of that. And so, son, I just want to tell you, I'm praying for you. I'm calling your name out before God every day. Now, when you're in the uh, fourth grade, you're 10 years old, you're not thinking too much about things like that. You know, you're more interested in baseball and other things. And so I thought, well, you know, that's nice. And I went on. But six years later, when I was a 16-year-old boy and God called me to preach, on November the 18th, 1973, in a Sunday night service, when I walked down an aisle and took my preacher's hand and said, I've been praying about this, and I believe God's calling me to preach, and he shared that with the church. And after the service, people came by, and there in the line was little diminutive Miss Bishop. She's a little older and grayer now. But she took my hand, and she looked up at me, and she said, David, do you remember what I told you several years back when you were in my fourth grade Sunday school class? know that from that day until this day not a single day has gone by that I have not called your name out in prayer to our father and then she looked at me and she said and son I will say this I promise to you that from this day until the Lord calls me home I will call your name out in prayer to our father every day later I guess godly lady for a million dollars because you see she is one of those great women of faith one of those heroes of faith who lived looking beyond their life looking beyond to see the fulfillment in God's kingdom and who was a mighty prayer warrior and woman of faith and upon her shoulders today as I stand to preach I stand upon her shoulders being aware of the great cloud of witnesses that are surrounding us. But then he says, secondly, let us run this race with endurance, having laid aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us. <laughs> now, anybody who knows anything about running knows that you do not run with anything that will hold you back. You don't run with any kind of weights or any kind of clothing that will hinder you or impede your progress as you run. You have to get rid of those things. As we uh, intelligent hillbillies would say in North Georgia, you have to get shed of that. 
You have to throw it aside, cast it off. And that's exactly the meaning of the word, the participle that is used in the Greek New Testament here when it says laying aside. That's a little tame translation. It literally means throwing off, getting rid of anything that would possibly hinder you running this Christian's ultramarathon living for Christ. He says we are to throw aside any weight that would hinder us. Interesting word there. Encumbrance is a good translation. It means anything that might be uh, an inordinate desire, a binding habit, anything that would be a pleasure we might engage in but that might be a little shady or shaky or might not be the best for a Christian. These are the kinds of things that would hinder us from running that we must cast aside. Now I know that you won't believe me when I tell you this, but I'll tell you anyway. When I was in high school, I ran cross country. And uh, we used to train wearing ankle weights, and those ankle weights were leather weights with sand inside, sewn inside there, two and a half pounds for each leg. And we'd get out there after school and run up and down those hills of North Georgia training for uh, track meets. Now, can you imagine when uh, it came time for us to have a meet with the other high schools in the area? And so here we are at the starting line. And all of the runners from all the other schools are there. There's Darlington, there's East Rome, there's Coosa. And here we are, West Rome High School, and we're all gathered there. And I'm ready to run. I'm at the starting line. And the coach, one last little word of encouragement, he's whispering into our ears, those of us representing West Rome who are about to run. And he says, now do everything you can, run your best, hang in there, don't quit. And then he looks down and he notices that I'm about to run this race and I'm still wearing my ankle weights. And so he looks at me and he says, David, son, you forgot to take off your ankle weights. And I say, no, I didn't. I've grown accustomed to them. I plan to run in them today. I actually kind of like them. I've gotten used to them. Now, if I were to respond that way to my coach, what would he think? Well, you know exactly what he would think. He would think I was six fries short of a Happy Meal. That's what he would think. Nobody in their right mind thinks about running a race, short or long distance, trying to wear the weights. So, why is it I noticed today when some of you came into the service, came into the auditorium, some of you were carrying some bulging bags of bitterness. And others of you, I noticed you had some bulging backpacks of unforgiveness and you came to your seat and you plopped them down there. In fact, it's bothering your feet right now. It's hard for you to be comfortable. And others of you, a few of you came in and you were carrying a big old trunk and you're coming in with that big old trunk of unforgiveness or anger or some sin or hindrance or weight and you had to plop it down. It wouldn't even fit between the chairs there it's plopped down on strewn up and down these aisles here I noticed that today why would you do that why would you as a Christian running this ultra marathon why would you run carrying all that baggage pray tell me what would you what are you thinking why would you do that no what are we to do get rid of every encumbrance that holds us back get rid of it cast it off Laying it aside, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Whatever habit, whatever's in your life today, that you and the Lord know ought not be there. Cast it aside. Throw it off. Get rid of it so that you can run effectively. But now notice he doesn't just say laying aside the 
the encumbrances, the weights, but he says, and laying aside, and look at it carefully, the sin singular. It doesn't say sins plural. The sin, and then he uses a word that is found only here in the Greek New Testament, and wouldn't you know it, only here in all of Greek literature that we know about. It doesn't occur anywhere else other than right here. The sin that so translated so easily entangles us. It's a lengthy Greek word that literally means the sin that so wraps itself around us and binds us that it fits us like a glove. Well, I wonder what he's talking about. Could he be talking about some pet sin that each of us has? Well, it's possible he's talking about that, but I want to suggest to you contextually that's not the case. By the fact that he doesn't use sins plural, but uses the singular. And in the context of having built the case for God's people living by faith and not by unbelief, which, by the way, is a key theme of the book of Hebrews from the get-go. I think that the sin that so easily fits all of us like a glove is the sin of a lack of faith in the Christian life. Oh, we want to live by sight, not by faith. I'd much rather live by sight. Suits my nature. I want to have it all figured out. Give me my calculator, my own intellect. And I want to just sort of figure this out. Lord, here's how it's supposed to work. Here's what's going to happen. And it's a lot easier to live by sight than it is by faith. But you see, the theme of the context leading up to the passage is all about faith and not unbelief on the part of God's people. You see, the Christian life begins by faith, but that's not where it ends. Faith is a vital part every day of your Christian life and mine. We must live, run, conduct ourselves by faith. And I think that's rather the sin that so easily entangles us. But... Now, having given us those two attendant circumstances about how we are to go about running, he comes to the main point. Look at what he says. Let us run with endurance the race set before us. If you could read that in the Greek New Testament, you would discover that the author has taken the prepositional phrase and fronted it. That's a fancy linguistic term that means he has put it first in the clause in order to apply focus and emphasis so that it would read like this. With endurance, let us run the race set before us. You see, nobody can run the race successfully without enduring. When you get tired, you think about quitting. When you fall, stumble, and hurt your knee, you think about giving up. That's what happens in a race. But you and I do not have the luxury, the Lord Jesus has not given us the luxury of dragging ourselves off of the track when we are, our, our spiritual lungs are heaving and our legs, spiritual legs feel like rubber and, and we hurt from top to bottom. We do not have the luxury of quitting. We must stay in the race. We must continue to run toward the goal of the prize of Christ's likeness. We must be found faithful and we must run how? With endurance. The word is a beautiful word. It means literally to keep on keeping on no matter what without quitting while bearing under a heavy burden. That's how we must live the Christian life. Some of you, some of you today, you carry some pretty heavy burdens. I mean, it's a struggle, isn't it? And you must endure. Not just be patient. That's how some translate this. That's too much too passive. Patience is knowing, learning how to idle your motor when you feel like stripping your gears. That's what patience is. 
But endurance is when the hill of adversity faces you, you put it in low gear, and you rumble up that hill with all strain on your spiritual engine, no matter how much it hurts or what it costs. You don't quit. You are going to face in your ministry all kinds of unbelievable adversity and problems and trials and difficulties and hurts and pains and struggles. Some of you say, well, gee, I haven't experienced that yet. Well, you're young. Just keep on living. (laughs) You will. You'll face them. And when you do, you're going to discover the meaning and the import of this passage of Scripture how important it is that we are to run with endurance. The race, and then look at the description of the race, that has been set before us. Look at that. You see, the race course, the Christian life, is God's design. He designs the course. He designs your running of the course. Whatever distance that you may run, whether you run many, many years or whether your course is short, as our Lord's course was only a matter of about 30 years in this world, in this life. But yet, whether you live to be 30, whether you live to be 100, whatever the course is, it is the Lord who lays it out, and it is set before you by Him. And it's your responsibility. You can't shirk it. It is your duty. You cannot renege on that or fall back. In fact, a great deal of what's going on in the book of Hebrews is saying what we need to do is press on toward maturity and the goal. Don't fall back. Don't quit. Don't lie, don't lie down on the job. But rather with endurance, let us run. You know, speed is important when you're stealing second base or when you're running the 100-yard dash. But when you're running the marathon, speed is not important. Endurance is important. And that's the way it works in the Christian life. Your life as a Christian, what matters is endurance. Are you willing to keep on keeping on? Let us run with endurance the race set before us. But then comes the third manner or method or means by which we run. And it's in verse 2. Look at it carefully. He says, let us run with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. The third way we go about running this race is by keeping our eyes focused on Jesus. The word is a word in Greek that describes that kind of focused attention. It's a word that pictures a lover looking at his or her loved one. It is a word that says, looking away from everything else that would distract and focusing in my attention on Jesus, let us run the race that has been set before us. Well, why Jesus? Why look at him? Can I look at my pastor? Can't I look at my president? May I not look at my Sunday school teacher, my mother, my father, who are Christian leaders? Yes, your glance can be on them, but your gaze must be on Christ. The focus of your life must be on Jesus. Looking, focusing in on him and no one else. If you want to be discouraged, look at others. Sooner or later, they'll let you down. They won't mean to, but they have feet of clay. And you look at them long enough and put all of your eggs in their basket, and they will accidentally break your eggs. 
If you want to be downhearted, look at yourself. Just be a person of all mirrors and no windows. And you'll really be discouraged. But if you want to be encouraged and uplifted and challenged to run this Christian's marathon, then fix your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Him. Why on Him? Because of who He is. He is the author and finisher of, our, of the faith. He is the author. The word means pioneer, leader, trailblazer. He's the start of your Christian life. And look at He's the finisher. Look at it. He's the one who completes it, who carries you through. And by the way, the implication of the language is he's there at the starting line. He initiates the race. He gets you into the race. And he'll be there at the finish line. You'll run into his arms when you get into heaven. And every step of the way of your Christian life, from the moment you're saved until the moment you are ushered into heaven, Jesus is running with you every step of the way. That's why you better keep your eyes fixed on him. Keeping your eyes, having no eyes for anyone but Jesus, fixing your eyes, present tense, keeping those eyes constantly, daily, 24-7, focus on the one, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. And by the way, the author of Hebrews takes the name Jesus and he puts it at the very end of the clause for emphasis so that it really reads like this, fixing your eyes on the author and finisher of the faith, Jesus. And that's what we are supposed to do. So we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. He's the author. He's the finisher of faith. Look at that. He's the finisher of not just the faith, but faith. Faith as a commodity. Faith as an action. Faith as a habit of life. He demonstrates it. He's the source of it. He's the one who models it. And that's why we are to look to Him in order that we might succeed in running the Christian's marathon by faith. And furthermore, here's why we look at him, fixing our eyes on the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Now, wait a minute, there's an unusual statement, for the joy set before him. What does that phrase mean, for the joy set before him? Well, I think that phrase is descriptive of the fact that when Jesus looked down the corridor of suffering that faced him, culminating on the cross and his death, in His atonement for the sins of the world. He saw all of those who would believe in Him. He saw the ultimate exaltation seated at the right hand of the Father after He'd gone through the suffering. And after He had brought many of us into His kingdom, those who would believe in Him. And He sees the glory at the end of it all. And for that joy of fulfilling the will of God, of seeing all who would be brought into the kingdom by virtue of His sacrifice, that joy caused Jesus to endure the cross. Look around, you're his joy. If you're one of his followers, if you know him, if he knows you by name, if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, you're one of his children. And for the joy, knowing that he would be bringing you into salvation and all of the benefits of that salvation, clear into the future when you're in heaven, which is a key focus of Hebrews. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured that cross aren't you glad he endured the cross he could have called 10,000 angels but he died alone for you and me he could have looked at the suffering of what the cross would mean and he could have said oh no I, I don't, don't believe I can do that don't believe I want to do that and left us in our sin but he didn't do, do that. 
when he was running the race set before him by the Father, procuring the atonement for our sins on the cross through his suffering, Jesus endured. And by the way, that's one of the reasons I love Jesus. I love Jesus for lots of reasons, but I'm going to tell you one of the reasons I love Jesus. He never asked me to do anything that he himself has not already done. He endured. He paid the price. He promises to be with me. And he calls upon me and challenges me to run the race with endurance, fixing my eyes on him, the one who endured the cross, despising the shame. And I have not time to talk about the sufferings, physical or spiritual, of Jesus on the cross. None of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night the Lord passed through. Here he found his sheep that was lost. Human tongue cannot put in to language and expression the sufferings of our Savior. And the author of Hebrews just sums it up by saying that he endured the cross, despising the shame. And on the other side of the resurrection, there was his exaltation. And perfect tense in Greek, he sat down and remained seated and throned. And forever and ever enthroned is he on that throne in heaven. And that's why you and I can run the race with endurance, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus because he has already anchored our lives, tethered us to himself, and he is seated on the right hand of the Father. I do not have time to develop this biblical theology, but let me point out to you that the book of Hebrews begins with a direct statement in the first chapter, a quotation of Psalm 110.1, and it ends this major part drawing the conclusion, drawing toward the conclusion of the book. Here is another allusion and reference to Psalm 110.1, and that becomes the key verse that the, the book of Hebrews is the sermon on the text of Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is the Son and High Priest who is enthroned in heaven. And we are to look to Him, direct our gaze toward Him, focus on Him because He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Then comes verse 3. For consider Him. Consider Him who has endured. Did you notice that the only word that occurs in each one of the three verses in this paragraph unit in Hebrews is the word endure? It occurs in verse 1, it occurs in verse 2, it occurs again in verse 3. This is the focus of our author. Consider Jesus who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. And watch it, here's the purpose. Here's the reason. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's easy, isn't it, to grow weary physically? Attend enough classes... Take enough tests, read enough books, write enough reviews, book reports, research papers. And you can become physically weary. huh? But you know, you can also become spiritually weary. And that is the deadly danger that awaits all of us in toiling for the Savior and running with endurance the race set before us is the fact that we're going to become spiritually tired and weary. And there will be, there will be for many of us, the temptation to quit. I'll let somebody else run. Let somebody else pastor that church. Let somebody else work with those recalcitrant people. Let somebody else lead that music. Let somebody else go on the mission field. 
Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus so that we will not grow weary nor lose heart. 1983, the ultra-marathon was held in Australia. The ultra-marathon is a race between Sydney and Melbourne, a foot race, the distance of which is 543.7 miles. And in 1983, some of the finest runners from all the world, long-distance runners, converged at the ultra-marathon in order to participate in that 543.7-mile race. Not too long before the race was to begin, there was a man who walked out of nowhere and walked up to the registration booth and requested a number to be allowed to run in the race. He was 61-year-old potato farmer and sheep herder, Cliff Young. And so he asked the question, I'd like to run, and the people there thought this was, they thought he was joking. They laughed, but it became evident it was no joke. Cliff Young planned to run. Well, they thought it was somebody's put up, you know, this is a joke, we'll play along. So they gave him a number, and Cliff Young took, I believe, the number 64, pinned it on his old overalls that he was wearing, and his galoshes over his boots. He walked up to the starting line with all the other professional runners from all around the world, decked out in their running regalia. And they looked at him and snickered, and some laughed, and people in the crowd were laughing. And the gun went off. And the race began. And everyone else began in the usual stout way of running at the beginning of a long-distance race, but not Cliff Young. When everybody else began to run in their usual way, Cliff Young had an odd, goofy-looking kind of a shuffle as he would run. And people began to laugh and snigger all through the crowd. And someone called out from the crowd, Get that old fool off the track! Five days, 14 hours, and four minutes later, at 1.25 a.m. in the morning, shuffling across the finish line to win the ultramarathon, came Cliff Young. Australia was stunned. The media mobbed him. He became an instant hero overnight in Australia. How could this be that a 61-year-old potato farmer and sheep herder could win the ultramarathon? And by the way, he didn't win the ultramarathon by just a few seconds, a second runner right on his heels, or by even a few minutes. Oh, no, the nearest runner in second place was nine hours, 56 minutes behind. Cliff Young set a new world record for the ultramarathon. And then it was discovered. Nobody ever told Cliff Young that when you run in an ultramarathon, 543.7 miles, that you don't win that race in a day or two or three. And it takes many days to do that, and runners would normally run 18 hours straight. 
And then they would stop and sleep for four or five or six hours, and then they'd get up and they'd run some more. And nobody ever told Cliff Young that, and he ran the entire distance without any sleep. And won the ultramarathon, setting a new world record. From that day till this, nobody runs the ultramarathon in Australia or anywhere else who sleeps. You run night and day without sleep if you want to win. Furthermore, they studied that little running technique, that kind of funny-looking shuffle of Cliff Young. And they discovered that that running technique is actually aerodynamically conducive and an energy conservation way of running. And to this day, you will find many long-distance professional runners using what is now called the Cliff Young Shuffle. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the race is not always to the swift. It is not always to the strong. It is not always to him or her who has all the marbles. It is not always to those who pastor big, fancy churches. It is not always to those who serve in the bay window of the Christian life. No, the race is to those who will be faithful to Jesus wherever He places them and serve Him faithfully by faith and run with endurance the race that is set before them. And those who keep their eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, These are the ones who one day will cross the finish line as they enter heaven and fall into the arms of the Savior and hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you for listening to this audio from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you want more information on our academic programs or if you would like to support our mission, visit www.swbts.edu.